This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 2nd, 2017. I'm Alexa Billow. In this week's show, I talk with Philip Tetlock about how head-to-head tournaments can improve our ability to predict events. And David Grimm is here with Sarah Crespi, with a roundup of stories from the Daily News site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our Daily News site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on sending oxygen from Earth to the moon. It turns out the Earth has been feeding oxygen to the moon for a long time, billions of years. Even though that means we're losing a little bit of atmosphere every day, it doesn't mean that the moon is gaining one. Right, Dave? No, we are sending four, or we have sent, four trillion, trillion, trillion atoms of oxygen to the lunar surface in the last 2.4 billion years. Not enough to create an atmosphere on the moon, not even enough to really create a a substantial amount of oxygen on the moon, but enough to be detected by uh, lunar probes. How are the atoms getting from our planet to the moon? Turns out that a small part of our air leaks into space every day. It's not really enough for us or our planet to notice. But some of the atoms and the molecules near the top of our atmosphere are simply moving so fast, they overcome Earth's gravitational tug, and they basically get shot out into space. Um, And once they escape, most of them remain inside this teardrop-shaped region of space surrounding Earth, which is called the magnetosphere. Um, And they're eventually blown away from the sun by the solar wind and out into interplanetary space. But for five days every month, Earth's magnetosphere passes over the moon, which shields the moon from solar particles and allows slower speed particles from Earth to take their place and thus get integrated into the lunar soil. This all comes from satellite observations? Well, this is from the Kaguya Moon Orbiting Probe, which is a probe that was sent out by Japan. And in 2008, sensors aboard the probe 
were detecting this really dramatic change in the kinds of oxygen ions that were striking the craft during this window every month where Earth's magnetic sphere uh, passes over the moon. Another neat thing about this finding is that it explains some anomalies that have been seen in lunar soil. This is about oxygen isotope ratios that have never quite been as expected, right? Right. These are some grains of lunar soil that were brought back by the Apollo astronauts. And a few of these grains had higher than normal proportions of oxygen, 17 and 18 isotopes, which is sort of a version of oxygen. Um, And nobody really could understand where those were coming from. But other studies have shown that the oxygen in our ozone layer, which seems to be where this lunar oxygen is coming from, has above average concentrations of this type of oxygen. So that could explain uh, that mystery. Now we have a story on a cheap way to hunt for dark matter. Dark matter is the elusive stuff whose gravity appears to hold galaxies together. It's thought to make up about 85% of the matter in the universe, but scientists are having an awfully hard time directly detecting it. Much of the hunt has focused on the proposed particles for dark matter called WIMPs, or weakly interacting massive particles. But despite advances in detectors, they have still not been detected. So Dave, let's talk about another potential format for dark matter called topological defects. What are they? Basically, this idea is that instead of a new subatomic particle, dark matter could be something uh, a lot bigger and a lot weirder. It could be macroscopic faults in the vacuum of space called topological defects. And basically what that means is that, you know, space is generally uniform, but there are these areas of space, kind of these craggy surfaces called domain walls. And these walls actually have, could potentially have energy And because of E equals MC squared, they could also uh, have mass and thus generate gravity, uh, which could be the mysterious dark matter. Okay, so we now have (laughs) squeezed down the definition of topological defects to something very simplistic. But we now have to get back to how at the outset I mentioned that researchers had found a cheap way to look for dark matter, and in this case, topological defects. What is the approach that they announced this week? Well, they're using GPS satellites. And the reason they turn to these satellites is because each of these satellites, uh, and they, their team looked at a constellation of 31 that are orbiting Earth right now, each carries an atomic clock and broadcasts timing signals. And receivers on Earth use this timing information um, from multiple satellites to determine how far it is from each of them and hence its location. And then and then you can use GPS to find your way around. But to use the data to search for dark matter, their researchers had to invoke another bit of somewhat speculative physics. And this is this theory that suggests that within these topological defects, the constants of nature will change. And in particular, the passing of a topological defect should fiddle with the so-called fine structure constant, which determines the strength of the electromagnetic force and the precise frequency of radiation that an atom will absorb or emit as an electron jumps from one quantized energy level to another. And that's the basis of an atomic clock. Exactly, because an atomic clock works by measuring just such this frequency. So were a GPS satellite to pass through a topological defect, the defect should cause the satellite's atomic clock to skip a beat. And they looked at a bunch of satellites and a bunch of data from these satellites over time. And, you know, the headline here is not dark matter found. So what did they find? First of all, they found no evidence of a shift greater than half a nanosecond. 
But what this does allow them to do is sort of put some parameters on, you know, if this is the source of dark matter, exactly what it might look like. So there's no smoking gun here, but what there is is a way forward. And what's really cool here is sort of a way to use a very cheap technology that already exists to hunt for something that's eluded scientists for decades. Last up, we have a story on dinosaur proteins. This is a long, long, long time coming. We're talking 80 million years. That's how old the proteins in this study are thought to be. Before this, the oldest isolated proteins were from a 3.8 million year old ostrich egg. Now we are talking 80 million from a dinosaur. This isn't the first time this claim has been made, though, right, Dave? Right. And speaking of a long time coming, this new find has been coming for almost a decade, which is a very long time in scientific terms. <laughs> and this basically begins in 2007 when a team reported that it had found protein fragments from a 65 million to 80 million year old dinosaur fossil. Now, this claim got a lot of skepticism at the time because scientists believe that proteins degraded relatively rapidly and there was mm -hmm. no way that a protein could survive for tens of millions of years. What's different this time? We're talking the same sample and the same research team presenting what new evidence that they can isolate a protein for something this old? Right. It's the same sample, same research team, except for this time, the experts seem convinced. And the reason they're convinced is because the team basically redid all their experiments from scratch. And one of the criticisms last time was that this must be some sort of contamination. So the research team just really went through their equipment piece by piece. They used new types of technology to detect and analyze protein fragments. They even went so far as to soak one of their pieces of equipment in methanol to ensure that there was absolutely no type of contamination from any other protein. And lo and behold, they found protein fragments again and fragments that seemed to match up with what they found before, suggesting that what they found 10 years ago uh, was also the real deal. Beyond learning that we can seemingly isolate these tiny, it is a very tiny sample, right? Ancient pieces of protein. What can we learn from the signal about dinosaurs? These proteins are fragments of collagen, which is the main protein in connective tissue. And it's very abundant in bone. Um, and what's really interesting here is that the collagen they found actually matches fairly closely to the collagen found in birds. And that makes a ton of sense because most scientists now believe that birds are descendants of dinosaurs. So putting all this together and knowing that it's possible to analyze proteins that are this old can really give scientists a new way to study dinosaur evolution rather than just looking at bones. Right. And one more question on this one. How is this possible? I mean, <laughs> no one really understands, like, does anyone really understand how a protein could last this long? Well, that's the big mystery. And really, nobody knows how they could have survived so long. But the team speculates that red blood cells in dinosaurs, after they decay, they release a lot of iron. And iron may react with proteins and sort of link them together and prevent them from degrading. Now, experts aren't necessarily buying that mechanism. They think that that could hold proteins together for a while, but certainly not tens of millions of years. So the jury's still out in exactly how these proteins survive for so long. All right, Dave, what else is on the site this week? Well, so we've got a story about what skulls, 7,000-year-old skulls, found in a Russian cave 
tell us about the origins of farming. Also, RoboBat, a robot that flies a whole lot like a bat. And there's a very cool video for that. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about the upcoming March for Science. This is an effort that's being organized in the U.S. to have thousands, potentially tens of thousands of scientists march on Washington, D.C., and why some experts think it's a very bad idea. Also a story about how President Trump's recent immigration decisions are affecting science, both in the U.S. and abroad. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. This episode is brought to you by Hollywood and Crime. Hollywood and Crime is a new podcast. Host Tracy Patton guides you through post-war Los Angeles, investigating the Black Dahlia and seven other murders in an audio-immersive world with vivid dramatization of 1940s Los Angeles. In episode one, her real name was Elizabeth Short, a starstruck young woman whose body was found in January 1947 in Los Angeles. Her murder remains the most infamous unsolved murder of all time. If you like crime dramas and the appeal of old-fashioned radio broadcasts, then you might enjoy Hollywood and Crime. Explore Episode 1 today and subscribe to Hollywood and Crime on iTunes, Stitcher, Wondery.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When forecasters try to predict a future event, they often couch it in vague language like may or might or could. No one actually knows what's going to happen, of course, but vagueness precludes accountability. Philip Tetlock says one way to step up the accuracy of predictions is with head-to-head forecasting tournaments. He joins us today to mark the science special issue on prediction. I'm Alexa Billow. Philip, thanks for being here today. My pleasure. First of all, can you tell us how a forecasting tournament works? I'm picturing something like your spring college basketball tournament, except with who was right about the election. Well, the analogy to sporting tournaments is not misleading. Forecasting tournaments are supposed to be level playing field exercises that allow us to assess which side in a political debate or controversy is closer to being accurate. So what kinds of things do we want to know? From this, I mean, elections are a big deal, but I assume there's other things that we could try to predict as well. There's an enormous range of things we try to predict. People want explanations and they want forecasts about financial outcomes, about economic trends, about climate change. The list is virtually endless. Who was responsible for holding the tournament and why? What was the goal? The tournament was sponsored by the U.S. intelligence community. Intelligence Advanced Research Projects activity between 2011 and 2015. And what they wanted to do, quite simply, was to incentivize the scientific community to develop better techniques for improving the accuracy of subjective probability judgments of events of national security interest, many of which look, quote unquote, unique. One thing you talk about in the paper is how hard it is to forecast unique events. Like, you can't predict the outcome of the Brexit vote based on how many times Britain has left the EU in the past, because this would be the only time. But this tournament yielded evidence that these things can be predicted. Can you walk us through how that works? I think the key idea here is that 
nothing, strictly speaking, is unique. Brexit was a referendum on whether Britain should stay within a particular organization. There's a large reference class of referenda that you can compare Brexit to. Grexit, the potential withdrawal of Greece from the Eurozone, same thing. You could treat it as a special case of forced currency conversion. When you look at events carefully, you will see that it's virtually always possible to take what Daniel Kahneman calls the outside view toward them and to view them as special cases of a larger reference class. So the tournament showed that individuals trained to work in groups perform better than the same number of individuals working alone. How do you get people to make accurate predictions in a group? There was a lot of disagreement in our research team about whether it was a good idea for forecasters to work in a group. The obvious concern is that when people come together in groups, they start to want to please each other, get along. There's a lot of conformity pressure or danger of groupthink. So you lose some of the independence of perspectives when people come together in groups. On the other hand, if a group is run effectively, there are big benefits to having people interact with each other critically and constructively. So we wanted to encourage people to engage each other in a critical, constructive fashion, to learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. And that was, I think, the key formula for making the groups perform better than some of the individual member parts. You also talk about how to break big, vague policy questions into smaller chunks with more quantitative answers. How do those chunks add back up together? What can policymakers learn from dividing questions up like this? Well, that's a technique that goes back a long way and is sometimes credited to the famous physicist Enrico Fermi. In fact, in the book Superforecasting, we turn Fermi into a verb and we call it Fermiizing. Fermi was famous for tormenting his graduate students with difficult estimation problems, trying to figure out what the magnitude of the atomic bomb blast was without physical measures, or trying to estimate the number of piano tuners in Chicago, all sorts of quirky, weird problems that initially look kind of intractable, but that when you start to break them down into their parts, begin to feel more tractable. So a problem, a silly problem, like predicting the number of piano tuners in Chicago, how do you start? Well, you start by estimating the population of Chicago and by making estimates of the percentage of households who are likely to have pianos or other entities in Chicago who are likely to have pianos. And you keep breaking it down, breaking it down. It seems a bit odd and it feels arbitrary and difficult. But the key thing here is what you're doing is you're flushing into the open all the areas of uh, ignorance, all the areas of uncertainty. You're flushing your uncertainty out into the open so it can be inspected by other people who might be able to refine the estimates. So if I think the population of Chicago is 4 million, someone in the room might say, well, come down a little bit, and so forth. Can this method help moderate our political discourse? I think acknowledging areas of ignorance, having an open-minded attitude toward your knowledge base, having a willingness to keep score, to assess how well calibrated you are, is a key part of cognitive maturity and, I think, political maturity. One of the things you discover when people participate for extended periods of time in forecasting tournaments is that they do become more actively open-minded and they do become better calibrated. Now, what does it mean to be better calibrated? Better calibrated means that there's a rough correspondence between the subjective probabilities you give events and the objective likelihood of those events materializing. So if I'm a super well-calibrated forecaster, say I'm a weather forecaster or an election forecaster or whatever, 
uh, if I'm super well calibrated, when I say there's a 90% likelihood of something happening, those things happen 90% of the time. When I say a 70% likelihood, those things happen 70% of the time and so forth. The research that you talk about in your piece focused on getting humans to make accurate predictions, but computers are in the prognostication business as well. How do you integrate those two things? Well, there's a big body of research over the last several decades on how to get the best out of human judgment and machine judgment. A lot of the early research indicated that people were best at identifying which variables to look at and were sometimes very useful in quantifying the degree to which those variables were present in a situation. But it was better to rely on machines and algorithms for integrating the information once humans had inputted it. So this is one potential division of labor between humans and machines. You have the medical doctors or whatever making judgments about the symptoms of patients and entering data on patients and making observations about patients. Those data go into the machine, which then offers conditional forecasts about how well the patient is likely to respond to one treatment regimen or another. And you can imagine this kind of process going on in many different lines of work, loan officers and banks and, and so forth. So it's not one or the other. There is a harmonious combination to be had. I think that was the early view. And I think that probably captures most of the state of the art right now. But of course, machines are advancing quite rapidly. Very specialized forms of artificial intelligence have shown that they can not only beat human beings at chess, they can beat human beings at Go, and they can beat human beings in a very complex knowledge-based game like Jeopardy. So the advance of artificial intelligence is very real. And the implications of that for job security for white-collar professionals are, are unclear right now. Philip, thanks so much for talking with us today. Okay, thank My pleasure. Philip Tetlock and colleagues write about forecasting tournaments in this week's special prediction issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. <laughs>